Do you ever think that the end times must have must be upon us? We must we must be there now. You know, I, of course, I know there have been throughout the years Bible teachers who have created elaborate prophecy charts and claim to have done all the math and predict the date of Christ's return, even though Jesus told us you can't do that. But what I'm thinking more of right now is just observing world events around us, observing big seismic cultural shifts, wars, technological advances, and and just feeling like the end must be near. And of course, the only problem is that you know, I'm sure my, my grandparents and great-grandparents you know, living through World War II could have easily assumed you know, these must be the last days. And even in my own lifetime, you know, I can still remember all the, the doomsday predictions for, for Y2K, which turned out to be quite underwhelming. But then just a few months later, right, 9-11 and the war on terror and And that certainly, living in that moment, it could be framed as if, like, this could be the final matchup between good and evil. But what I'd like to consider this morning is what if God, in in his word, has told us what to expect, told us that things are going to be bad, so we shouldn't be surprised. And what if the the true signs of, of the end times really have, have less to do with these cataclysmic, kind of geopolitical, global shifts, or, or even massive natural disasters. What if God, in, in warning us in advance to be prepared for hard times, has also told us that the main source of that hardship is people. It's humanity. You know, to quote the old comic strip Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Well, right now, we're in a sermon series going through the book of Second Timothy. Uh, this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And, and really, he's providing final instructions uh, for this young pastor, but really for the church in a future without Paul, without this great church-planting apostle. And so just as a recap... Uh, in, in, in the first chapter, the opening chapter of this letter, Paul charged Timothy not to be afraid or ashamed of the gospel, but to guard that precious deposit of the gospel of Christ. And then in the second chapter, Paul called Timothy to really the, the hard work, the, the need for endurance in order to entrust that gospel to future generations and even to suffer for it. And Paul also warned Timothy about false teachers who, who really threaten to wreak havoc in the church if they're not stopped. Timothy is, is going to have to oppose these false teachers with the truth of God's word, but also in a manner of, of godliness and gentleness, and still holding out the hope that God could still could grant repentance even to these opponents, and that they might come to their senses and be saved. And so now as we, as we move into chapter 3, uh, there's, there's a turn from kind of that really faith-fueled hopefulness to, I'd say, really a more sober outlook. Um, maybe it could feel like a little bit of a darker turn. Paul warns Timothy that, 
that self-centeredness and ungodliness will run rampant, resulting in some really hard times for the church. But Timothy needs to continue to imitate Paul's commitment to truth, to godliness, to patiently trusting God in the midst of hardship. So let's, uh, let's turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, again, that's on page 996 in those blue pew Bibles uh, under the seats. Uh, we're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is God's Word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions, persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So as we, as we walk through uh, this, this section of Scripture, as we walk through this passage, we're going to basically break it down into three, uh, three parts. Um, and those are going to be simply just the first section, verses 1 through 5, is going to be the forecast. Uh, and then section 2, verses 6 through 9, is the fallout. And then the final verses, 10 through 13, is the faithful. So the forecast the fallout, and then the faithful. So first, the forecast in these verses 1 through 5. Paul opens the chapter by highlighting this crucial fact that he wants to make sure Timothy understands this. And it's, it's that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. It's, it's literally terrible times. Uh, and so, but before we even explore why the times are going to be so difficult, uh, one important question to answer is what is even meant by the last days? Well, if we, if we were to go to, to Acts chapter 2, you don't have to turn there right now, but in Acts chapter 2, 17, the, the, great, the sermon on, on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has fallen on Jesus' disciples and they're speaking in foreign tongues and Peter stands up before the crowd and he tells this, this huge gathering have just seen this, this great sign, he says that this is the fulfillment of a last day's prophecy. 
Peter, Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So, so the last days describes this final redemptive historical period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Uh, another, another passage we could consider is the opening verses of, of Hebrews in chapter 1, where the author says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then Paul himself, in one of his other letters to the Corinthian church, uh, he writes that these Old Testament stories about Israel, that they were, they were all written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's forecast of, of these difficult times is already here in the present. Timothy is, is living in the last days, and that'll, that'll become clear as, as Paul is, is warning about these specific characteristics and these, even these specific people who are already a, a threat to, to Timothy's church there in Ephesus. But if Timothy is living in the last days, then certainly we here at South Canyon Baptist Church in the year 2023 certainly are as well. Now, to be clear, this isn't to say that, that things might not get worse in the future. You know, even down in verse 13, the last verse in our passage, Paul says the evil people will go on from bad to worse. And it's also not to say that the times will be continuously terrible without variation or relief. By God's grace, there may be periods of, of revival or stability, and there may be times of greater darkness and peril. But, but the reality that, that we, we learn about here and really in so many places throughout the New Testament is that as Christians living on, on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ, we are in the last days, this, this age of the already and not yet. Uh, and what I mean by that, it's, 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 really, um, it's illustrated really clearly in Jesus' parable of the weeds uh, that he tells in Matthew's gospel, where where's this, this field, God's field, contains, if you remember, both wheat and weeds. There's the children of the kingdom and the children of the evil one. And, and both of these groups are left until the harvest, until that final day of judgment. Uh, the, the biblical New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner uh, explains it really uh, helpfully this way. He says, The kingdom of God has come in transforming power, but astonishingly, the enemies of the kingdom persist and are not removed from the scene. The world is filled with ambiguity and tension between those transformed by the kingdom and those hating the kingdom. Indeed, in some instances, it is difficult to discern who genuinely belongs to the kingdom and who does not. Only on the final day will we be able to discern clearly all those who genuinely were believers and those who only appeared to belong to God. And that's, this is very much what, what we're dealing with here in this passage. It's very much the dynamic uh, that Paul is writing about uh, here in 2 Timothy 3. So Paul's purpose is to equip this young pastor for leadership in these days of ambiguity and tension. He wants Timothy to, Timothy to be prepared for these hard seasons. And he makes it clear these seasons are going to be hard because of people. And so Paul goes on to describe uh, these people with a list of, of 19 vices, which 
Certainly all of these could, could probably be placed under just an overarching banner of self-centeredness. Uh, but there are some, some other key themes, there are some key relationships, I think beyond, even beyond that, to, to notice here. First of all, in, in verses 2 through 4, the, the bookends at the top and at the bottom of that passage really have to do with love, with misplaced love, right? So, so in verse 2, it begins by saying people will be lovers of self and of money. And then at the end of verse 4, come back to this theme of love, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So when a person loves the wrong things, they, they will certainly fall short of God's standard because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if instead our love is, is centered on self and centered on material things and centered on, on pleasure pursued on our own terms, the result is, is not only the violation of God's law, but it's also just the complete breakdown of human relationships. And that is really what we see in all these other vices listed in verses 2 through 4, in, in between the kind of the love uh, bookends. So just looking at this list, even briefly, someone who is proud, arrogant, and then further down, swollen with conceit. This is someone who views himself as more significant than other people. His wants, his needs are what matters, and, and others are here to serve him. Someone who is abusive, unholy, heartless, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, treacherous, and reckless. I mean, it's, it's just jarring, right? But such a person will, will cruelly harm others with their words or their actions and not even think twice about it. And then someone who's, who's disobedient to parents who's ungrateful, unappeasable, not loving good. Can you just see there how their value system is so upside down? Disobedient to parents who, who have God-given authority to, to guide and to instruct a young person. Ungrateful even to those who have, who have helped you and served you. Unappeasable, which, which really means there that once they're offended... There's, there's no forgiveness. There's no chance of a truce. There's no possibility of reconciliation. And then not loving good, really the opposite of that, despising what is good. All these things are completely upside down. And the list is so commonly marked by the absence of positive qualities. It's, it's the negation of, of, of good qualities, of positive qualities. You can see that sometime in the English, uh, and it's, it's really clear in some of these, these Greek words that Paul uses, but, you know, unholy, without self-control, ungrateful, so many of those, those negative prefixes. But at the root of all of those things is, is this misplaced love, right? And so, Christian, the question for us today is, is what do you love? What brings you the most joy and delight? And, and if and when you find your heart gravitating to love what is not good, not true, when you sense that your love is more centered on self than others, 
more on your own pleasure than, than the glory and praise of God, how can you actively shape and cultivate your loves? I think one of the, one of the big things when it comes to this question is, is, is our habits. What are the, the things that you consistently spend time and energy in pursuing? What are the things that you make room in your life for? What are, what are the voices that you spend the most time listening to and, and the content that you consume? These are some of the things that have great power to shape and mold your loves. So ask yourself, what are those, those habits for me? Is it the, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it the public worship of God, as we're doing this morning, as well as the private worship? Is it the study of his word? Is it, is it engaging with, with great literature and storytelling that, that reflects and reinforces what is good and true and beautiful? Is it going out and enjoying God's grand creation with wonder and with gratitude? Or is it rather the kind of entertainment that, that mocks and despises godliness? You know, is it, is it social media debates that even if, even if the topic is important, uh, these are conversations that just lack all basic respect and, and decency? Is it the endless news cycles that, that promote in our hearts fear and discouragement or even anger and outrage? What is shaping you? Who is shaping you? What or who is, is discipling you? And when you ask that question, I, I hope, I hope that you can see, I don't mean just one of the pastors up here on Sunday or, or someone you might meet with occasionally. I hope that's happening and, and that's a really important influence, but I hope you see there are so many other things that disciple us, that shape us. And again, Scripture makes it clear that what you sow, you will reap. Your loves will be formed the most through what you allow to influence you the most. And so Paul concludes this whole long laundry list of vices with kind of this closing indictment, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, it might seem unbelievable that people with all these negative traits could, could in any way be described as having the appearance of godliness. But, you know, history proves this to be true. People can appear very religious, very zealous for God, very passionate about being right, very outspoken even about their piety, while at the same time filled with pride, having a, a mean spirit, hurting the people closest to them, and, and in their hearts valuing the wrong things. Such a person can, can put on the outward form of godliness, but deny its power. What does that mean to, to deny its power? It means there isn't that inner work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and to sanctify. It means God isn't working in them and through them, so there's a lack of, of genuine, lasting fruit in their, their own life and, and also in, in their ministry, whatever that might be. There, there's an absence of of true holiness, of true change from the inside out. And unlike Paul's example to Timothy, which we're going to look at next, 
unlike in Paul's life, there is not an ability or a willingness to persevere and to endure in suffering. And so, after all these descriptions of, of these self-centered, ungodly people who are going to cause so much difficulty and so much harm, Paul ends by saying, avoid such people. And, and that might seem like kind of an understatement, but those three words really refer to the practice of church discipline, which is a really important biblical teaching, um, particularly as it relates to the life and the practice of the local church. And we aren't going to fully dive into that right now, uh, but, but Jesus lays the foundation for this you know, famously in Matthew 18. Uh, if, you, if you want to read more about that or, or study more about that, I would, I would start there. And then Paul, even again in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he describes this process in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with a situation where a church member's life reflects egregious sin and ungodliness. And, and so the congregation is instructed by Paul not only to remove that person from the church, but not to associate with or even eat with that person. And so what we can see, again, this saying avoid such people, it's the same kind of language that Jesus and, and uh, the other uh, New Testament authors would use throughout um, description of this, this church discipline process. Someone who is like this criteria in verses 2 through 5 that we just looked at, this person should not be held up and affirmed by the church as, yes, this is a repentant follower of Jesus. And certainly they should not be given free reign to, to exercise influence over and cause harm to the flock. Now, hear me loud and clear here. It's not that church members must be perfect or without sin. It's that they're, they're dependent on the mercy and grace of God. So they have a, a humble stance toward God and toward their brothers and sisters. And they display evidence of God working in their lives. These people, again, in, chapter, in verses 2 through 5, they have an appearance of godliness, but are lacking the real power of God. And, and I would say that true Christians should, should actually be the opposite in, in a way. So that in observing their life, you can see that spark of true spiritual life. You can, you can catch a glimmer of, of the new creation bursting through. You can see God's power at work. Even though the outward appearance is kind of unimpressive. They're humble, weak, dependent, often just struggling, limping through in, in the fight for faith. Not really not really someone who looks like they just have everything together. I think that is so often what the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. So that is the forecast, these, this warning of, of these, these kinds of people uh, and the threat to the church. So then in, in verses 6 through 9, we really see the fallout. Uh, in this next section... We see the consequences when these wolves in sheep's clothing are allowed to exert their power and their influence. And this is really a continued reference to the false teachers that Paul warned Timothy about previously in the letter. Back in chapter 2, he even named some individuals, Hymenaeus and Philetus, 
who have swerved from the truth, who are upsetting the faith of some. So again, reading verses 6 through 9, Paul describes it this way, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So first of all, just to consider the the victims who were in view, the victims of these false teachers in in verses 6 and 7, I think will be helped if we consider not only the specific occasion, but but also just the broader principle. Because within the historical setting, I think these, these weak and vulnerable women, we don't know a whole lot, not a lot, not a whole lot is really described, but maybe, you know, they may not have been well-educated. Perhaps they were gullible, and so therefore an easier target for these false teachers to deceive. Um, if we consider Paul's description um, in, in his other letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.13, these, these may have been individuals who had too much free time, they're, they're described uh, in 1 Timothy 5.13 as, as idle gossips. But does this mean, then, that, that women are the only ones who need to be on guard? Or does this mean that, that women are just universally more susceptible than men? I don't think that is the argument in this passage. I think that in that time, culturally, there may have been, again, some of these wealthier women who were at home with, with more time on their hands and not stewarding it well, not busy with good works. And again, Paul describes that in his other letter to Timothy in the discussion of, of eligible widows. But I think that if we consider our first world, 21st century setting, that actually most of us, both men and women, and young and old, have, have far more discretionary time than, than the common laborer would have had in these ancient times. We have really a lot of free time. You may not feel that way, but I think it's true. We have a lot of free time to consume entertainment and news media and teaching and various spiritual influences that would claim, that would present themselves as Christian. And certainly, people in our society who, who are retired, again, whether it's men or women, could be susceptible, like these women in 2 Timothy 3, not because of their gender, but because of the free time they have. And so, what I hope we can do is look at the the timeless principle here. These these women who were described as weak women were uniquely vulnerable, and so were susceptible to these false teachers. And what are the reasons that are given? Well, number one, it's because they were burdened by shame from past sins. And really, that's why the forgiveness that we have in the gospel needs to be preached week in and week out in our services. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves each day, and we need to preach it to one another in our Bible studies and our small groups. But not only that, number two, it says they were led astray by various passions. And these would be current struggles and sinful desires. And, and really, that's where we need 
that transforming power of the Holy Spirit and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit and also to, to be to leaning in and pursuing spiritual disciplines, again, to shape our desires and our loves according to God's will. It also says they had an endless appetite for learning, but without, without the discernment to, to weigh the things they were hearing and to just remain firmly committed to what is true. And finally, I think one of the reasons they were susceptible is because these teachers could creep into their home and it says capture them. And so South Canyon Baptist Church, what, what do you allow into your home? You know, it could be literally guys knocking on your door to convert you to a cult and you invite them in and just take in everything they have to say. But you know what? It's not always as clear as that. It could be through your smartphone. It could be through your television. It could be a favorite YouTube channel or Facebook or podcasts or newsletters that you get. So every Christian should keep a close watch on themselves. And again, asking that question, who is discipling me in terms of the time that's spent, in terms of who or what has the biggest influence and it's shaping my thoughts and, and shaping my loves. Whose voice am I really taking to heart? Now, in verse 8, continuing through the passage, Paul compares these false teachers in Ephesus to, to Janus and Jambres. And so in Jewish tradition, those were the names of the magicians in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses. And so these, these teachers opposing Paul and Timothy like those magicians, they are opposing the truth. They're promoting another gospel than Paul's. It says they're disqualified regarding the faith because as they align themselves against the true gospel as false teachers and also as they demonstrate their ungodly character, they prove not to have a true saving faith. And like, like Janus and Jambres, they're working against God's purposes. They're, they're actively seeking to keep God's people enslaved and oppressed by sin and evil instead of finding freedom and life in Christ. If, if the magicians in, in Exodus were, they were opposing the Exodus, they were trying to keep that Exodus from happening. Well, well Jesus performed a much greater Exodus, right? And these people are trying to prevent that from happening in the lives of of their fellow human beings. And in the end, they will be judged, and the folly of their opposition to God will be obvious. Now, it's important to remember, in light of, in light of that, that promise, that their folly will be plain to all. It's important to remember that even though ungodly and hostile people may rise up even within the church and cause disruption and pain, but we know that sooner or later they will be called to account. Sometimes we get to see it during this life when, when abusive behavior and deceit catches up to someone and there is a reckoning. And, and please don't, don't be confused about this. When, when an influential person, a leader with bad character, when someone who spent years 
destroying people's lives and undermining their faith and just causing all kinds of havoc, when, when that person is found out and, and loses their power and influence, that is not a tragedy. Now, yes, it may be very disappointing for those of us who were unaware. It's, it's, it's a hard thing, but it is not a blow to the kingdom of God or to the reputation of Christ. In fact, it's God's mercy putting a stop to evil. And it's how the purity of the church is restored. And what it is, is a small, just tiny foretaste of the day when Christ returns and makes everything right. Because we know, in the end, every corrupt and false religious leader will be exposed and judged. But, but Paul calls Timothy to something much different from that, much, a much better outcome. And so that's what we see in these final verses, uh, 10 through 13, we see the faithful. I'll just read again from uh, beginning in verse 10. He says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the alternative for Timothy is to imitate the example of Paul, the apostle, and his, his father in the faith, just as Paul has imitated Christ. Now, when Paul says to Timothy, you have followed me, it's, it's not simply that, that Timothy has, has kind of understood or, or observed certain characteristics of Paul, but it means he's committed himself to, to following Paul's example really as a guide or a rule for his life. It's a true commitment. And then these list of things that Timothy has followed, it begins with Paul's teaching. The wor different words and terms that have been used uh, throughout this letter, it, it's, it's the testimony about Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good deposit. This message that's been passed down from Paul to Timothy and then must be entrusted by Timothy to other faithful teachers. The true gospel is foundational for anyone who wants to avoid the miserable outcome of the people listed in, in verses 2 through 9 who wants to avoid the miserable outcome of, of ungodliness and eventual judgment. And this gospel is, is just really a simple, life-changing message. It's that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, to save ungodly, self-centered idolaters who, who have failed to worship and love their Creator and failed to love their neighbor. And because of sin, because of that self-centeredness in our own hearts, each and every one of us has, has fallen short and deserves eternal separation from God. But because God is compassionate and gracious, in love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die the death on the cross and to bear the judgment that we deserved. And so now whoever turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ is forgiven, and reconciled with God, and given the promise of eternal life. And, and we know 
that this offer is real because after three days, God raised Jesus from the dead, exalting him to the right hand of the Father. And one day, Jesus will return for his church and bring them into his glorious kingdom, and he will judge the wicked, and every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord. Now, if, if you've never heard this gospel message before, or just if you've, if you've never truly embraced it and, and put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do that right now, even where you're sitting. Just turn away from your sin, admit, confess your sin, put your faith in Christ, and, and just begin to get to know him more and seek to follow him. And, and please talk to me afterwards, uh, any of the, the pastors or the elders here who are on the back of your bulletin, um, or, or maybe someone who brought you here, we'd love to talk with you more about what it looks like, what it means to follow Jesus. But Timothy, not only has been committed to following Paul's gospel teaching, he's been committed to imitating Paul's way of life. It's his conduct, it's his aim in life, his purpose, his faith, his patience, his love and steadfastness. This is, is really this whole alternative list of godly character. It's a stark contrast to that earlier list of vices. You see, the sound doctrine, the teaching, it should result in sound godly character. And Timothy has spent years in very close proximity, close association with Paul. He has seen his conduct day in and day out. He knows that Paul is not a hypocrite who presents a really glossy outward package, but behind the scenes acts selfishly and arrogantly. No, he knows that Paul is a person of integrity who lives according to the gospel of Christ. Paul has been faithful. He has been patient with wayward churches and and treacherous opponents. He's demonstrated Christ-like love toward all. And he's remained steadfast even in the midst of severe persecution and suffering. All these different towns, that, cities that Paul lists there, all kinds of opposition and, and extreme physical suffering, things that happened to Paul, being stoned uh, almost to the point of death. And, you know, really, this is, this is the real test of faith. Does a man, does a woman continue to reflect the humility and the gentleness of Christ when they're suffering, when things go wrong, when people unfairly attack them. So brothers and sisters, that's the kind of character, that's the kind of person you look for in a potential elder or a pastor in this church. That's the kind of thing that you look for in an older man or an older woman who could, who could help to mentor you and to disciple you. And not only that, but any of our, our single young adults here, this is the kind of person that you look for in a potential spouse. But each and every one of us has the ability, because we have God's Word, we have the ability to, to carefully study, and then by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit working in us, to follow the rule and the example of Christ as he's presented in the Gospels, and the rule and the example of, of Paul the Apostle as he appears in the New Testament. And, you know, we're, we need this instruction, we need this example, 
Because, again, in our own text here, as Paul reminds Timothy, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect to face opposition if we're in Christ and aiming to please him. Jesus himself predicted this in John 15, 20. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, he told his disciples. So if we never face any opposition, any rejection, any pushback, how do we explain that exactly? Certainly it's something I've struggled with in, in my Christian life. Do we just chalk it up to good luck and God's blessing on us? I think uh, one commentator, John Stott, in, in discussing this, this passage in 2 Timothy, I think he has really great insight here. And he says that Christ foresaw that his followers would be both in the world, that is, living among godless people, and at the same time not belong to the world, living a godly life in Christ. So those who are in Christ but not in the world are not persecuted because they do not come into contact and therefore into conflict with their potential persecutors. Those who are in the world but not in Christ are also not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. So the former escape persecution by withdrawal from the world and the latter by assimilation to it. It is only for those who are both in the world and in Christ at the same time that persecution becomes inevitable. I think these are challenging and convicting words and, and worth, worth really reflecting on. But even as we, as we take to heart these, these warnings, these somber warnings from Paul and, and from Jesus to his disciples in John 15, at the same time we have reason to take courage because as Paul recounts all of these sufferings, all these hardships that he endured, he can say in verse 11, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And, and later on, Jesus, uh, all that he's sharing with his disciples in gos- the Gospel of John, in John 16, he gives these words of comfort. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, Christian, the promise is not that we will be shielded from suffering or that we will avoid persecution, but we can have confidence that our Savior protects us. He keeps us to the end. As as God's children, as, as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, nothing, not even death itself, is able to separate us from His love. And so that is our hope and our foundation as we seek to follow Christ and to become more like him. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we do ask that you would take these truths that we have considered this morning, that you would uh, really write them on our hearts, that we would be warned not only from, from those other people who could be, who could be threats, who could be someone uh, to, to watch for, but we would also be watchful of our own hearts, that we would not allow all these wrong loves to, to take root 
and to lead us astray. We pray that by, the, by your grace, by the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would faithfully walk in the example of, of the Apostle Paul, in the example of Christ, to be faithful in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of pain. Uh, and then that would just, again, your grace operating in our weakness, that, that would bring glory to Christ, that it would, it would draw others to ask, what is this hope that you have? We pray that you would work in and through each and every one of us, that you would protect this church and protect uh, the members of this church from, uh, from ungodliness and from, from uh, wrong beliefs, both from without and from within. And we thank you that you are more powerful uh, than he who is in the world, and you will do it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.